Good morning, Southbridge. Glad you're here this morning, and those of you who are guests with us, uh, I know sometimes your first visit, your second visit can be the hardest ones to come. You don't know how people are going to act, who's going to be there, um, what they're going to think, all those kinds of things. So I want to thank you uh, for taking a step of faith even and just coming to church and checking us out. And if you are a guest with us today, I want to give you just a, a special hello. And so hello and welcome. And uh, there's a little card we put inside our worship program. We call it a connection card here at Southbridge. If you wouldn't mind taking that out of your worship program right now, and if you look at that, uh, there's a little spot for you to put your name on it. If you fill that card out and turn it on at our first-time guest kiosk today, then we make a donation to a ministry called Women at Risk International. And what they do is they rescue people out of human trafficking. There are more slaves in the world today than there's ever been before. Some of you are part of a an event that we hosted yesterday uh, for civilian first responders, just thinking about that and how it happens in our own community. And so you're more aware of that situation. It's something that our church's heart breaks over. And so um, if you fill that card out, we're going to make a donation to that ministry because you turned that card in. So if you would do that for us this morning, that'd be a blessing to them and to us just to let us know that you were here. And I know we have some special guests here too. Some of our missionaries from Madagascar are here, Nathan and Tessa. And I can't see a ton, but are you guys, where are you guys at? John's waving at you. Where were you at? All right, way up in the back. We won't make you come down here, but thank you for being here. So special hello to you. And no, first-time guest, I will not make you stand up. So thank you, though, for being here. Um, but uh, we're going to jump back into the series that we were doing, uh, the book of Acts. The book of, We're calling it Movement. And we were in Acts chapter 13 last week. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13 again today. If you want, you can go ahead and turn there. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. But Acts chapter 13, verse 42, picking up where we left off last week, talking about an attractive faith. And so if you have an iPad, a phone, or something like that, you can look up version, download that real quick, and get it. The verse will be on the screen but sometimes people like to follow along so they can see all the stuff that's going on around the passage. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump into the text. Father, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to open your word, that you speak to us, that you care about us. We know you know our thoughts, um, you know everything about us, and you knew exactly what we would need to know. And you wrote it down in your word as a love letter to us, and I pray that as we go through it, um, you'd speak directly to our hearts. And I pray, God, that you transform us. I pray that those... Um, who have eyes to see but can't see and have ears to hear but do not hear, that you would open their eyes today and they would hear the scriptures, they would hear your word for them, they'd hear your plan for them, that they'd come to know your son Jesus. And I pray for those of us who've been brought into your kingdom, they've been brought into your family, that we'd be overwhelmed with your grace and we would just fall more and more in love with you as a result of the words you speak to us today and speak to us. Somehow supernaturally, speak through my lips, speak to the words on the page. God, do what you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 13, we'll jump into verse 42, and what we were looking at last week, for those of you who weren't with us, or just as a review, uh, was a sermon that Paul was preaching in a synagogue, and remember he was talking about God's vision for his people, not just Southbridge, not just you individually, but for all of his people, and for every church, every church in America, every church in China, every church in South America, every, all the churches, it's God's vision. And we talked about God as a visionary, and you think about God created every creature on earth, whether that's an insect, whether that's a unique animal, whether that's people. He created each one of us, fearfully, wonderfully made. Uh, he's made us as humans in his image. And he's got a vision for you. You think about all the details that it means that he created you. He created all of creation, the most beautiful scenery you could ever see. We talked about that. And how he created that. How he created the rain. Before he created the rain, before he physically made your body, before he made the earth, before any of that, he had a vision for your life. And we saw it in Ephesians chapter 1 last week. And what that vision was is before the creation of the world, he had predestined you to be adopted into his family, to have access to every spiritual blessing, that you'd be a son or daughter of the king, and that you, even though you're not holy and blameless, would be seen as holy and blameless. Why? Because of his love. That's his vision for you. He wants you to have that intimate fellowship, the intimate relationship with him. And here's what will blow us away. He does it in a way that we would never ask or imagine. We'd never dream up how he makes that possible. 
that he would hand over his only child to a bloodthirsty crowd who would mock him and beat him and eventually execute him. Because that's the only way. If there was another way, would he do that? If there's any other way. There's no other way. And so he does that so you can have a relationship with him. So that you can then be seen as holy and blameless in his sight. Because what happens is a transaction there is that he who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, becomes your sin and my sin. So that we could, when we surrender our lives to him, become his righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And then Paul goes on in that message and continues to preach about the forgiveness that he gives us. And that not only does God forgive us, but he justifies us. He makes us right. And we talked about how I can forgive you, you can forgive me, but we can't justify each other. When you sin against me, I can say I'm not going to hold it against you anymore. When I sin against you, you can do that. But we can't undo it. You're still guilty. I'm still guilty. God makes us right. And the implication of that is then we should fall more and more intimately in love with him, which then would result in us living an attractive faith, an attractive life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what these men were doing in this passage of Scripture. And that's what we're talking about today is an attractive faith. I'm going to pick up actually in verse 40, 41, uh, the end of last week's message. What Paul does at the end of his sermon is he gives a warning. He quotes from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. He gives him a warning in verse 40 that he's about to. He says, take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. And then he says in verse 41, this is the quotation from Habakkuk, look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. Don't miss this, is what he's saying. He just told you incredible news you'd have never been able to dream up on your own. From a, a positive perspective, God does beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. You wouldn't believe it, even if God told you about it. That you're going to be, even though you're a sinner, you're going to be made righteous. Even though that you're separated from God, you're going to be brought in reconciliation with God. We could never dream that up. But he does it. But he says on the flip side of that, the wrath is going to be so bad, the judgment will be so bad, even if I told you what it was, you wouldn't believe it. Originally quoted in Habakkuk, it's talking about how God was going to raise up a pagan nation, the Chaldeans, to judge the Israelites because of their disobedience. And then when they're done, let's pick up and see this attractive faith. Even though they said that. Verse 42 says, As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. So how cool if they got invited to speak, but then they get invited back. That's not what typically happens. Remember, they usually get run out of town. They're trying to stone them. All kinds of bad stuff's happening. They're getting flogged. They get invited to come back the next week. And it says, verse 43, when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's an attract. They're drawn to this. They're an attractive faith. Verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. So not everybody was drawn in. Verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. It's <laughs> a little Bible smack talk right there. Don't consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. And here's the key. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. It's a quotation from their book, the Jewish book, Isaiah, chapter 46, verse 9. It says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And they're saying, we're fulfilling this command. And verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Amen. 
So what we see here is this incredibly attractive faith all the way through the passage. At the beginning, they're, they're warning them. They're telling them of God's vision, adopted into the family, a message of grace, but also there's a warning. And they're saying, we want, no, we want more. And they come back to give more. And not only do they show up, they bring all their friends and the whole city shows up. Now, everybody's not excited about it, but then Paul and Barnabas tell them, let me tell you why this is so attractive, because we've been commanded to be a light to the nations, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. That's everybody else. It's Acts 1.8. It's stated again here. They're going to be a light to the world and say that we're being that light because an attractive faith reflects the light of Jesus Christ. Did you get that? An attractive faith reflects the light of Jesus Christ. If you think about it, every follower of Jesus should actually have an attractive faith. Every follower of Jesus should reflect the light of God. But we're a church family. Well, good's a relationship you can't be honest, right? Let's be honest. That's not how it works. There are a lot of Christians that are um, phony. A lot of Christians that come across just as cheesy. Um, A lot of Christians that are shallow. Some that are blatantly hypocritical. But every once in a while, you ever meet someone that's a follower of Jesus, and there's just something about them. It's almost like whether it's the, you know, the words that they say or whether it's just their countenance, their presence. It's just you sense like they've been with God. And there's something that draws you to them. It draws you in. It's an attractive faith. And think about what is it that attracts you to something? Why is it when you're watching television, you fast forward some commercials and you don't fast forward others? I mean, some things just don't interest you. But some things, they, they hit on a desire. They hit on a need. <laughs> As I was thinking about this this week, the illustration that came to my mind was, uh, going to the grocery store when you're hungry. How many of you have ever been grocery shopping when you're hungry? Isn't that a bad idea? Because all of a sudden you're, you want stuff that you normally wouldn't be a big deal, right? Like you go in, if you're hungry, and you walk in, you go into BJ's or Harris Teeter here in town, and there's some guy standing there who's like, would you like a free sample of turkey? And they've got like turkey rolled up on a toothpick, and they're trying to hand it to you. And you're like, well, I'm hungry. Yes, I'll take a free sample. And, you eat, and it's just normal turkey, but you eat it, and you're like, that is some amazing turkey. Like, what do they feed that turkey? Steak? Like, that was good. Must have been drinking honey before they cut its head off. You know, well, what happened? And so then you order, like, eight pounds of turkey. You go over to the deli. And you put it in your cart. And then you walk through, and you're like, I'll eat that for a sandwich tomorrow. And then, oh, frozen pizza. You're in the frozen section. Frozen pizza for dinner. That'll be good. And I'll have some taquitos to go with that. And, ooh, a frozen burrito, too. I'll wash all that down with an ice cream sandwich. You know, you're just grabbing stuff. You're just putting stuff in at that point. Now, this is a problem that could have been solved by eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich before you got there. Well, why is it that you want this stuff? It's because of desire, perceived need or a need that you have. That's what attracts us. That's what draws us in. I remember when I I first met the guy who ended up um, telling me about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I didn't know what it was. I don't know if it was meaning in his life, some kind of direction, purpose. But I knew he had something I didn't have, and I was drawn to that. And even after becoming a Christian, sometimes you'll, you'll meet people and it's, I don't know if it's just the way that scripture will flow off their lips or there's just the way they feel so comfortable and just life. But every once in a while you meet people and you're like, I, I want to be around them more. I want what they have. It's an attractive faith. And today as we walk through this passage of scripture, hopefully you'll ask yourself, is that the kind of faith that I have? Do I have an attractive faith? Do I have the kind of faith that people would be drawn to because I have what ultimately they want, what they need and ultimately where that comes from is the light of christ in you like we talk about in verse 47 here and if you think about light you see that all over scripture in fact the bible's enveloped with light i don't know if you've thought about this before but in genesis chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4 the earth is formless and void darkness hovers over the earth and god says let there be 
light. Then you go to Revelation chapter 22, and what happens is God obliterates all darkness, but here's the thing. There's no need for sun, there's no need for moon, there's no need for a lamp. God is the light. Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, I'll read it to you. And the night shall be no more. They need no light of a lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. He is the light. Here's another interesting thing. So you've got at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, you've got this. In Revelation chapter 22, at the very end, you've got this. Do you know how many times in between this happens? And I didn't count this up. You can go look this up on your own. A great resource for studying the Bible is a, a dictionary of biblical imagery. Dictionary of Bible imagery says that there are almost 200 references to the image of light throughout the scriptures. And so it's all over the place. It's God is light. It's we're supposed to be his light. It's Jesus Christ came as the light of the world. You see it all throughout the scriptures. And what we see here is that's what's happening in the life of these two men that they're coming after. It says in verse 42, go back up in the text. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things. Listen, we want to know more about what you're talking about. And what were they talking about? Remember, it was a message of grace. It was God's forgiveness. It was God's justification. It didn't say that you will be, if you just clean up your act enough, if you would just obey the rules, if you just do these things. It didn't say that. He said, God will make you right. He's the one who does the work. Now try and think about the audience that's hearing this. This is a Jewish audience. He's in a synagogue. They're used to coming to synagogue and hearing, here's what you need to do. And they come back the next week. You didn't do it? All right, well, you need to try harder. Here's what you need to do. It'd be like this. Like, here's the five steps to holy living. You didn't do it? All right, well, you need the three keys. All right, now you need the two principles. Now you need the, you know, be all alliterated, right? You don't have any idea what that's like, do you? See, some of us make Christianity this way. It's all about doing more and to keep adding on more and more things. As you fail, we'll just, we'll just add some more stuff that you need to do and it becomes a pretty heavy burden. See, they're used to hearing about rules. And what Paul and Barnabas are talking about is a relationship. And it's a relationship that happens by grace. And they're saying, we want to know more about that. They're drawn to that. We want that. And it says some of them wouldn't even wait till next week. It says verse 43. It says when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts of Judaism, they followed Paul and Barnabas around. They're following They're going, hey, tell us now. Like, we'll take you to lunch. We'll go to, come over to our house. Let's, we want to know more about this. And who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God? Next week we're going to come back, and that's the message that's going to come from that phrase, them being urged to continue in the grace of God. So you're invited to come back next week. But look what happens in the next week for them. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now, I don't know how big the synagogues were. The whole city? Like, is this hyperbole, Luke? Like, really? How do they show up? I imagine the place was packed. People were standing along the walls outside. Maybe they had multiple services. <laughs> Maybe it was the first time they ever did multi-site. You know, they're right here. But the whole city came. And they gathered. Why? Because they wanted to hear the word of the Lord. They wanted to know more about this grace. It says, when the Jews saw the crowds, verse 45. Not when they heard what Paul was preaching. Notice that. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. And so they speak against what he's saying, but it wasn't what he was saying that they were actually upset about. It was that the people were coming, the crowds were coming. And so what is Paul saying? Let's review. Last week, remember, it's, God's got a vision for your life that you would never believe. He wants to reconcile you to himself. He does it by sending his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus dies for your sins. Not only does he die, but he rises from the dead, defeats death, can offer you life. He's the only one that can offer you life because he's the only one that's risen from the dead. Other religions didn't even claim to have somebody that's done that. 
And so he's risen from the dead. He offers you life. And here's how it happens. It's free. It's not about doing more rules. It's not about being a good little boy and little girl. It's about you accepting his forgiveness, accepting his justification. And let me tell you what he'll do. He'll turn your life upside down. You're going to fall radically in love with him. And they're not upset about that. They're upset that the people want that because it's different than what they're giving. And what has happened here is that their religion has actually become cultural. Because it's from the beginning, in Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham when he's making the people of Israel, when he's creating this people group, he tells them, I'm going to bless the world through you. He says in, Gen- in Isaiah that you're going to be a light to the world. It's, all, it's in the Old Testament. It was God's plan that Israel was supposed to draw other nations to himself, but they didn't do it, and they made it their own little thing. And now they're upset because Gentiles can go directly to God without converting to the Jewish culture. It's dangerous. I remember talking to a friend about relationship with Jesus when I was in college, and uh, he said that I can't convert to Christianity. And I said, why is that? He says, because I'm Druid. It's <laughs> like, well, what in the world does that mean? Like, it sounds like Star Trek or something. I didn't know what it was. And I wasn't making fun of him. I was, we were buddies. I was like, hey, what, what, what are you talking about? And he said, I don't know. I really don't know. I just know that's what we are. And so that's my culture. So I can't leave my culture. If I became a Christian, then I'd be, you know, kind of leave my, my thing. This is what the Jews are upset about. And we can look at that and go, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> don't forget how we make Christianity cultural. I remember thinking I was a Christian because I was an American before I came to know Jesus Christ. Some people think because they go to church or because they live in the South or whatever reason that you're, you're, you're not Muslim, so you must be Christian. Oh, that's dangerous. That's where these people are at. So they're speaking against what Paul is saying. They're not even processing the information. They have eyes they can't see. They have ears they can't hear. They're going to speak against the word because it's different than what they know and what they know is what they want and they have control over and they've got power over the people. And the words that here are that they speak against, they speak abusively. Literally, the word that says they speak against them, it's anti the word. They're contradicting what Paul was saying. It's in the imperative tense, which means they were doing it over and over and over again. So Paul's preached this one message, and then they continually come back and try to refute this. Let me tell you something. Anytime truth goes forth, there'll be lies to counter that truth. I was preaching this summer, sometime in the middle of the summer, I can't remember when it was, and I was out in the front door. I didn't even know this happened, but uh, I got to the point in the message, the most important point in the message, the gospel, and I'm saying, listen, we're sinners, and we need a Savior. And I had a friend tell me that in Theater 14 across the hall, for those of you who are new today, you might not know, hello, Theater 14, uh, there's a video of this service that's going on across the hall, and there'll be people over there. So in Theater 14, while I'm going to that point where I say, you're a sinner, you need a Savior, the music comes on in Theater 14 from the theater, and the music goes something like this. Don't worry about a thing. You got nothing to worry about. Is that coincidence? Is that coincidence? Exact contradiction. When I'm, t- I'm telling you the most important information will transform your eternity. Oh, you don't need to worry about anything. And I started to think about it this week as I was preparing this message. Ask the Lord to give me, give me your words for these people that come through my lips from this page and speak this. And I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking, I'm going to preach one message. How many messages you're going to hear between this Sunday, if you come back next week, Lord willing, how many messages you'll hear? Now think about the message I'm going to preach to you. I'm going to preach to you. you know, God loves you. God's got a plan for your life. He wants to have a, an intimate relationship with you. You're his chosen people. You know, just the, all the stuff that Paul's talking about. Think about how many messages you're going to hear between hearing this and next Sunday. Thousands. If not a million messages. Maybe millions of messages. And so the odds are that you're going to hear a whole bunch of stuff that contradicts this message. God loves you. I, mean, I don't love you. I mean, he loves the world, but I mean, you. God's going to forgive you. 
forgive you? You know what you've done. His chosen people, not you. I mean, there's other people. But... Ever heard things like this? And maybe you hear them in a commercial. You just need to try hard. You just go get yours and do your thing. I'm going to talk to you about surrender today. You just need to go, you need to go for it. It's your thing. You just need more self-esteem. Really, we're going to talk about humility. How many things are going to blatantly contradict the things that I'm going to tell you today between now and then? There's no way that I can be persuasive enough, uh, entertaining enough, uh, say it just the right way to make it stick in your life. One to 999,999 messages that you're going to hear. That if you were just smarter, if you just had this product, if you were just thinner, then people, then, then you'd feel loved. If you just had this, then you'd be satisfied. If you would just do your thing, then it, you're going to hear the exact opposite. That's what Paul's facing here. He preaches this message to these people. These people are hungry for this because they're hungry for the truth. God's purpose, eternity in our lives. And they're coming, and then these people start to contradict it. They speak against it, abusively, not against Paul, but against what Paul was saying. They're contradicting the message. And then Paul hears it, and he's not shy about it. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first, to the Jews he's speaking. But since you rejected it, do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. We're going to give it to everybody, and here's why. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. And I'm going to tell them what God actually commanded them. I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth, that you would be a light to the nations. When we talk about seeing light all throughout Scripture, you know where light, the light originates, it is God. God is light. It says it no clearer than in 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to read you several verses on light here. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 says this. This is the message that we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. That's pretty clear. There's nothing to be like, oh, I don't know. What does the Greek say? No, it's God is light. That's what it says. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie. Do not live by the truth. Not only is God light, God dwells in light. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, and part of verse 16 says, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, and who lives in unapproachable light. So the light that he lives in is so bright that we can't approach it. My friend Jason and I were talking about World War I, World War II this week, and we were talking about an atomic bomb. Atomic bomb going off, the light was so bright, it vaporized people. That's a bright light. God dwells in a light that we cannot approach. That's how bright it is. But he also sits on the throne of grace. And he allows us to approach him because of his grace. Not only is God light, but he sends his son Jesus Christ as light. John chapter 8, verse 12, that he would be the representation of light in this world because he is God. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 12, verse 46, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And so what happens with this light? He comes into the world, First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So we're called out of darkness, into the light? Yeah, why? Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world so that you'll be a light. A city on the hill cannot be hidden. Need the people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and they give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let me review these verses for you. God is light. He sends his son Jesus Christ as representative of light to rescue us out of darkness. He calls us out of darkness into light so that we would be light. 
That's the summary. Obvious question, are we light? But the best person to answer the question is probably not you. And it's probably not me. It's probably the people that we're supposed to be light to. I would consider it a challenge you to ask them if you think they would be honest with you. If you don't, it's just a, a game of futility to feed your pride. But if you think you could have a relationship with someone, specifically a non-believer that you're close enough with, to say, are you drawn to my faith? Well, that might be an interesting conversation. I was talking with a couple guys um, that are clearly not followers of Jesus. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had gone to a hospital visit at uh, Duke Hospital. The family had a, a tragic situation, and I was headed up there. And I hadn't been there before. And so I called the hospital to actually get directions. That's how bad it was, ladies. Those of you who have husbands, you know how bad this can be. I actually called, and I said to the nurse, I said, well, can you just give me an address? Like, I'll put it on my GPS. And she said, well, I don't know the address to this building. I'll tell you the address to another building. <laughs> and when you see that, then you're close, and you'll be able to find it. I'm like, uh, no, but okay. And I run down the address. And so I get to downtown Durham, and I don't know what I'm doing. And I start making U-turns. I'm pulling up to people on the sidewalk and saying, hey, do you know where this building's at? And they're pointing me in directions. Finally, I pull up to this one building, and, and I, I, it's a medical building. And so I get out, and the valet parker guys start walking towards me. And I said, hey, I'm looking for this building. And they're like, it's this building right here. And I'm like, I'm at it? Whoa, this is crazy. Thank you, Lord. You know, I show up at the building. I said, where do I park? And then they say, over, and they point way far away. And I'm like, oh, man, that's bad news. And they said, or you can valet park. I was like, all right, I'll valet park. So I give the guy my keys in my car. I go inside hanging out with this family and praying with them and going through a difficult time. I come downstairs and I'm saying goodbye to this dad and give him a hug. I see my car's out in front of the building still. And so I've been there for a little while and, and the guy goes back up and I walk out and the guy drives away in my car like right as I walk out there. Oh man. So I walk over to the valet booth. I start talking to the guy. I say, hey, my car, you just drove away, but that's fine. Um, how late do you guys open? It was like 8.30, 9 o'clock at the time. We just start chatting. It comes out that I'm a pastor and the guy says, how'd you become a pastor? I said, oh, well, if you want an easier opportunity to share the gospel, I don't know what it is, but here it is. And so I started telling him how I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior and how what God did. Now, I didn't want to be a pastor, but then the Lord worked on my heart, and he does what he wants, and we're talking through all this stuff. So, so what do you believe? He goes, oh, I'm an atheist. Oh, okay. Why are you an atheist? How did you become one of the... How, tell me what you don't believe in. You know, <laughs> so we start checking. And uh, he says to me, basically, um, some, you know, some of his experiences, I mean, basically the reason why I'm an atheist is because of Christians. I think they're hypocrites. Things I've seen done in the name of God and starts talking through some of those things. And the guy comes back with my car. And I figure, I don't know, my kids are sleeping now. My wife's not going to be up, so I'm just hanging out. I'm just staying here with these guys. Other guy comes walking up. He starts talking. He hears what we're talking about. I say, hey, what do you believe? He goes, well, I'm agnostic. And then he corrects himself. He goes, well, I'm a pagan. I was like, no, okay. Well, at least you're clear about that. And so an atheist and a pagan guy, and we're standing there, and we're, we're chatting through. And he's telling me about all the hypocrisy he's seen in Christianity. And so that's his his struggle. I'm trying to point him to God. I'm not trying to say, hey, well, there's a couple people. You know, I was just trying to tell him, you know, it really, it's a thing with God. And, and they start, we're hanging out. People start coming, like they're dropping cars off, picking cars up. And I'm just standing, I'm just like, I could drive, you want me to take your car? You know, I kept just hanging out with these guys for a while. And uh, we're getting to know each other and talking about life. And um, finally, they start telling me in a code. And when they told me the code, I said, can I tell my church this? And they said, yes, I could tell the church. They said, they actually know Who's going to tip and how much they're going to tip based on the radio station they're listening to in the car? They said, you know, if I get in the car and somebody's got, you know, right-wing political radio station on, I know there's a good chance they're not going to tip me, but if they do, it's going to be good, is what they said. They said, the left-wing radio station, they're, they're going to tip, but they're going to be cheap. And so that's going to, kind of how that's going to happen. So there's a time we know when we're not going to get tipped anything. Sure you want to know, Pastor? You know, we're chatting, they're talking. 
when there's a Christian radio station on, then we know we're not getting any money. And so their assessment of Christians are that we're cheap hypocrites, was essentially uh, what they have. And they'll talk about the kind of cars we drive up in. And they say stuff like this, like they, they think that would blow my mind, I'd never get it to believe. Do you know there are some people from some churches, they actually give us Bible verses as our tip. They give us these little booklets about their church. They think that's our tip. Like, we work for money. We don't work for Bible verses. And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. And those guys are like, he's telling me the stuff like, I've never heard of it before. And they're going, well, I've got this one friend, she waits tables, and on Sundays they'll come and they'll leave these little books instead of leaving money that looks like money, like faking people out. I'm sorry. You know, I know, I know what the Christians are thinking. Well, this is better. No, give them money too, okay? If you're going to give them the book, then give them, it's not bad to give them a little book. You give them some cash. So their assessment, I don't think that's what Paul was talking about. That would be a light to the nations. Cheap hypocrites. I was reading another guy, he's a blogger, a blatantly Christian blog, and he said he gets non-Christians that will write him in periodically, and so one time he just did a blog where he put some of the, here's the things that people are saying about Christianity. One woman put on there that she could never have a real relationship with a Christian because as soon as the Christians found out, she's a Buddhist, as soon as the Christians found out that she didn't want to go to their church, they stopped being friends with her. Super friendly at first, really nice. And then she said, it's like we have targets on our back and we don't want to be someone's project. And she was saying, I want you to care about me. And so we talk about, you know, at our church, heavier one, you know, what do we say? Love them. Not just an assignment. Care for them. You share with them out of care for them. Somebody before the service today was telling me about their heartbreaking over someone that was lost that they knew. It's actually a Buddhist, by the way. I don't think that's what Paul was talking about. I don't think that's what Paul was being. I don't think when Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven because he is the light. So he's the one that when they see the light, they would glorify him. I don't think that's what he meant. And so what do you do? How do you, how, if you don't have this light, if you're not demonstrating this light, what do you do? Go back to verse 47 here. It's a quotation, Isaiah 46, 9. Notice that you're not the one who makes this happen. Verse 47 says, I have made you a light. God is the one that makes us a light. Does that clean up your act, try a little bit harder? Now, now here's the deal. We can hinder that process. You see, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, when Jesus is speaking to different churches, he says, I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm, I'm going to take the light away. You don't love me. You're a compromiser. You're afraid to do what I'm telling you to do. So I'm going to, I'm going to take the light away from you. You're not going to have the influence. And so oftentimes we mess it up, but we can't make it happen. And so what needs to happen? Well, I'm going to illustrate this to you. To give you an illustration, I need a volunteer. So I need one person uh, that's willing to come down here. I'm not going to ask you any tough theological questions. I'm not, in fact, I won't even make you talk. I need you to hold something for me. I'm going to have you hold one of these baskets and represent. Kanan, you can come up here. You're raising your hand. You just run down here, by the way. The first one down here gets it. Um, I'm going to represent the average Christian. So Kanan, I'm sure that you are uh, you know, totally sold out for Jesus and, and all those things. So I'm not just saying this about you, but you're going to be average. I won't even say Christian because we know that in America there are a lot of people that are just churchgoers. So on the front of this box it says average churchgoer. So I want you to know that. Okay? So you're an average churchgoer, and um, we're going to talk about, and you know I've shared with you as a church before, the statistics would say there's not a lot of difference between the average churchgoer and a person who doesn't go to church. And so divorce rate's the same. You go to church, you might vote a certain way as a result of that, more likely to at least... Um, maybe give a little bit of your income that some other people don't give. Um, but for the, generally, uh, it's pretty much the same. And so if you're an American churchgoer, 
your life will consist of the American dream. And so we've got some things over here in this box that I'll take out and represent that. So you got a job, uh, hopefully. And so there you got the job. You're going to have uh, a car. i got a nice little car here. I'll pop that in there. Uh, that's right. A dog, probably. My daughter calls this tiara. There's a, there's a dog right there. Uh, and a family, you know, a wife and a couple kids here. And uh, Canaan, looking pretty buff, buddy. And Canaan, Hammer Church, going. Jasmine and Aladdin. There you go. And there, so I put that in there. So you got the American dream going there. You got a wife, kid, cars, job. Things are going pretty well. But if you're like the average person, uh, that's just not enough. And so we're going to do something else. What else are we going to do here? Well, um, maybe you need a house. So we get a house, a Monopoly house. There, right there. How about that? See what else we got in the box here. Well, you're a Christian, so we got to put a little Jesus stuff in there. So put some Jesus things in here. I got some Jesus sayings. You're not like necessarily a radical, sold-out follower of Jesus, but you've got some Christian-esque type things, and so I've got some sayings that you could put in here. Um, how about this one? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Not in the Bible, by the way. However, great to manipulate your kids to get them to clean their room. So put that in here. Little Jesus. Put that jesus stuff in there. Oh, let's see. When God closes a door, he opens a window. <laughs> And the Christian fortune cookies. Pop that in there. And uh, Money is the root of all evil. Not in the Bible either. Something similar. A little quiz for you. Put that in there. You got some God stuff in there. That's the American dream thing happening. Got your house going. Good job. But if you're like most people, it's like, there's, there's got to be something more. Well, there's money. I mean, you got a job. So there's some cash here. Got some cash here, Canaan. Put that in there. Oh, lots of it here. $500 bills. How do you make those, huh? $500 bills. You got about $4,000 here. Let's say this is for a month for you, and you're your average Christian, and the stats would say you'd tithe. Well, it's not really a tithe. You give 2 or 3%, and you call it a tithe. It's a tooth or a threeth. We really call it that. So we'll take a little bit out. rest of it's yours. Put a little bit in the box at church. And But, I don't know, I mean, I'm doing what you, I think you want me to do, God, and at the same time, it's still something's. Miss sin, and so you kind of, well, statistics would say, our sins are not that much different, and so got your pet sin, whatever that is, I'll drop it in there, and maybe you just, you just like to have fun sometimes, so a guilty pleasure music, One Direction. <laughs> Canaan, you didn't know you were beautiful, did you? There it is, there it is for you. But it's not working, and so what do you do? Well, if you're like most people, well, then you change some stuff, so maybe you need a different job. Get that out of here, and done with that. Do like the business thing there. There's that. There you go. Maybe that doesn't work, so switch her out. See how that goes. Maybe you need, a, maybe you need to upgrade the house, Canaan. <laughs> but if you're like most people, you realize that that didn't work either. Then you change churches, change total vocation, change, change, change the context, switch it around, mix it up. But it still didn't work. God, what do I need to do? Maybe I need to clean up my act. So maybe I need to deal with this. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe if I just dealt with that, that thing, then I'll keep this stuff. And, but then something else comes in, and it just becomes this train. You just start shifting stuff back and forth, and, and that's not what it is. I'll tell you what the Scripture says. It says that your life is not your own, Canaan. You've been bought at a price. And that uh, if anyone wants to save his life, he has to lose it. And what happens is that God doesn't want you just to give him like, parts of your life. He wants you to radically have it turned upside down he takes the whole thing it's called surrender he says if anyone 
That's any person throughout human history. If anyone wants to come after me, he must take up his cross, deny himself, that means die to yourself, and follow him. And what happens is that he transforms you and you fall in love with him. Your attitude becomes the same as that of Christ Jesus, who in very nature God did not consider equality with God something for him to be held onto, but he gave it up and became a servant and died and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so he wants you to die to yourself. And he radically transforms you. And that's where then joy comes in and, and peace comes in and love comes in. And that's what happens there. And so, Canaan, thanks so much for coming up. Give Canaan a hand. Thanks, Canaan. Jesus didn't die so you could live a normal Christian life. He died so that you could have a love relationship with him and you'd be radically in love with him and he'll turn your life upside down. But what it requires of you is surrender. You surrender your life to him. You give it all to him. It's not, hey, Ed, you know, I know I need, to, maybe I need to give a little bit more. I need to stop listening to that kind of music. I need to, if I just dealt with this one sin. No, he wants your life. The whole thing. And here what you see with Paul and Barnabas is you've got people that are willing to, I'm going to do whatever you want, God. Here's, here's my desire. My desire is that your light would be seen to all nations. And so wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, that's what I'm going to do. And people see this and they're, and they're drawn to it, but here's the deal. Not everybody loves it. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy because here's the thing. Your light shines the brightest in the midst of difficulty. And that's what we see next. Is that your light, the light of Christ, an attractive faith, shines the brightest in the midst of difficulty. It's through difficulty that it's put on display. It's like a diamond when you put it on a black cloth. It's brighter than you see it more than. You think about Job in the Old Testament where Satan has this conversation with God and he says, well, of course he praises you. You give him everything he wants. Let me have him. And God allows some things to happen in Job's life. So let's see if he praises you then. It's a spiritual battle that takes place ultimately for the glory of God. We see it here in this passage of Scripture. As he says, we light to the Gentiles. The Gentiles respond really well. Uh, verse 48 says, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord. I Meaning they submitted to it. They did what the, the Bible said and, and of the Lord. And all who were appointed eternal life were believed and they came to faith. And the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Then verse 50, but, contrast, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. And they stirred persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. And so what happened here, William Barclay tells us that Judaism was really popular for women in the ancient world, and the reason why was because sexual morality was so rampant. And the people that were the greatest sufferers as a result of that and the breakdown of the family were the women. And so women flocked to Judaism, not because it transformed their life, because it spoke to a need. It was an ethic. It was a clean way of living. And so 80% of the people that would come to the synagogue were women from this. About 50% of their converts were women. And they had husbands. And his husbands had high standing. And so the Jews were shrewd. And they used their relationships to get those men upset because their wives are upset. It's real practical how this actually works. And then they kicked them out of town. This is perhaps where they were beaten with rods and sticks. It's mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul talks about this specific persecution in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11 being persecuted in this place. And you know what he says in verse 12? He says that if anyone, in fact everyone, who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Promise. From God's word. So you have any persecution? It's foreign to most of us in our country. 
But here's what blows my mind is how they respond. Verse 51 and 52. Uh, so they shook the dust from their feet and protested against them, and they went on to uh, Iconium. Listen, you're not, you're gonna, you've rejected the message. You've had your opportunity. I'm going to go on. I, there's more people that need to hear about this. Verse 52. And the disciples were filled with... Remember what happened here. Uh, the guys that just told them this message of grace were beaten and kicked out of the city. And the disciples were filled with fear. And the disciples were filled with anger. The disciples were filled with joy. And what makes that joy stand out is the difficulty. It's the persecution. They're filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And so that was what was seen in these disciples that were left behind is this joy that they had in the midst of this persecution. Where does this joy come from? Well, it comes from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from them obeying the right principles, knowing the three keys. It was the Spirit of God who had indwelt their life as they surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. These are the people who responded to the message, surrendered to Jesus Christ. Then when persecution came, the light just shines even brighter because now joy stands out like a diamond on the black cloth when you read this verse. In the midst of this persecution, they had What? And most of us, persecution is not a normal part of our life, and, and so we read about it in other places. And I was reading well, some of the things happening in Syria this week, and some of you, I'll just assume you're watching the news. If not, you can go and see some of the terrible things that are happening in Syria. Let me say this. I'm not making a political statement about whether I think we should go to war, shouldn't go to war, any of those kinds of things, or what I think is going to happen if we do or if we don't. I'm reading about what's happening over there. It's bad. Basically, there 10% of their population is Coptic Christians. Um, they're under persecution. They've been under persecution. It just started happening when it came on the news here. Um, they've been under a situation where if you're a Christian, you've got three options. Convert to Islam, pay a high tax, or get out of town. Those are your options. Different stories you read about them burning down businesses and churches and Christians being beaten, raped, killed. They're being burned out of their houses, being burned out of their churches. Um, all kinds of stuff happening. In the midst of that, I read this story of these teenagers I said they're going to have this youth retreat in an oasis in the desert there. Eight to 14-year-olds go on. They're going to learn about the Bible. They're going to sing worship songs. And uh, they're going to pray. They're going to pray like crazy. In the midst of brutal persecution. And you know what their prayer was? Their prayer was that they would be a salt and a light. And I think, would we even go? Much less send our children. Would you send your kids to that? And then I started thinking, well, what if, what if something did happen? You know, the fear is, you know, if we do this and economic downturn, maybe we turn into, some people are even saying, turn into a third world country if this war goes bad. I'm not saying that's going to happen. What if it did? What if we didn't have all that we have? You know, the statistics say that if you make $34,000 a year, you're in the top 1% in the world economically. And I know some of you don't. So let's say you're in the top 20% in the world. So 80% of the rest of the world has less than you. Um, what if you went into that other 80%? And then God tells you to give. Give to someone who has need. Would you give then? Give to me, as he commands us to do. When you don't have anything extra, then are you going to give? Or, or what about if you're not allowed to go to church? What if you could be killed for going to church? Well, then the scriptures say not to forsake the assembly of the believer. And so are you going to go? At the risk of your own life, are you going to come and assemble with other believers like they do in underground churches around the world? Can I share something with you? When it rains, our attendance goes down. That's the culture of Christianity that we live in. But what about you? What about if it's illegal to say the name Jesus 
But we've been told we've got a king, and he's told us his orders. Well, see, some of us are afraid now. And I don't say this to, to make you feel guilty and think your faith is so lousy. Let me tell you what I want you to do. I want you to see faith like we see with Paul and Barnabas here and be drawn to that and say, I want that. Or, or these Syrian Christians or other people that are surrendered that you may know and say, I want, I want that. I want what they have. I want that attractive faith. And you know what? You can have it. He makes it available to all of us. And he does it through his son, Jesus Christ. He's the light. What he wants to do is he wants to dwell in you. And as he dwells in you, then God's light is seen through your life. God is light. First John chapter 1, verse 5. It's as clear as it can get. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to be light. He commands you to be light. And so the question is, are you light? And if not, if not, you can have that. So do you have an attractive faith? Some of you don't have faith at all. You need to trust Jesus Christ to be your Savior. You can do that today. We have a response team. They'll be out in the hall after the service. They'd love to pray with you. You can do it right now. You don't have to wait for them. The Bible says that you've been separated from God because of your sin. But Jesus Christ had no sin and he died for yours. And so then he offers you life. Romans chapter 10 says if you believe in your heart that that happened and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you'll be saved. And so that's what you need to do. For those of you who maybe, oh, but I prayed a prayer, but just, that's not true. Or I walked the thing. Or whatever I did. I raised a hand two weeks ago when you asked this thing, Scott. Went, okay. Does he have your life? Because that's what we're talking about. You surrender your life. Anyone wants to save his life, lose your life. Give him your life. That's what he wants. If he doesn't repent, that means stop doing what you're doing and turn to him. And the enemy is going to speak a million messages to try and contradict what I just said to you. And so let's go to battle. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We need you to do something supernatural. We need your spirit to work. We need your spirit to transform, to transform our lives. God, there in our hearts. There's a battle going on for many of us. There's a battle for our minds, a battle for our hearts, a battle for our souls. And Father, if there are any here that need to know your son, Jesus Christ, I pray that right now they would call upon your son, Jesus, to be their savior. And I pray for those that maybe made a profession of faith that are not genuinely submitted to you. I don't care if it happens now, if it happened before, but that you would take over their life right now. Father God, I pray for those of us that are believers and we get off track, just like Jad was even saying at the beginning of the service. We thank you for your grace, that your grace is sufficient for us, that's in our weaknesses that you're made known. Would you let your light shine even through our failures, even through the biggest mess-ups in our life, that we would turn to the cross and that your son Jesus would be seen through that. We surrender our lives to you, God. Give us the strength to do that. Give us the strength to surrender. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.